Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the content director here at Word on Fire. Joining us from Santa Barbara is Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, always good to see you. Hey, Brandon. Good to see you. How are the kids doing in Orlando? They are doing wonderful. School's winding down. Yeah. Summer's getting nearer. So they're all kind of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel uh, <laughs> of the long school year with COVID and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this episode is going to be dropping in late March, um, which will be after, hopefully, your recent discussion with Dr. Jordan Peterson has gone live. I think it will already be published by then, but you just had a conversation, uh, gosh, what was it, a, a few days ago yeah. um, with Dr. Peterson. This was the second long dialogue that you've had with him. Uh, tell us about it. How did it go? What were your immediate thoughts about it? Yeah, real positive. Um, I spoke to him for a solid two hours, and uh, he said at one point, "You and I both really like abstractions, don't we?" And I said, "Yeah, we do." You know, <laughs> so we both love ideas, and so we did a lot of oh, the Bible, morality, philosophy, the present day culture, Nietzsche, Jung, you know, Dostoevsky, Dante. We covered all these things. He and I have a lot in common in terms of our our interests. And, uh, you know, he was, he was what you'd expect. I mean, he's very smart, very sharp, uh, very curious. Um, we talked, of course, a lot about religion. And uh, I would say the relationship between a more kind of Jungian archetypal approach to religious texts and then a more, call it properly evangelical approach. And Bible, faith, all of that we, we talked about. So it was a very stimulating conversation. Maybe after it goes live, you and I can do some sort of debriefing yeah. conversation where maybe we'll pick out chunks from the interview and, yeah, and talk good. through them at a little more depth. Yeah. But look forward to that. I'm, I'm sure Word on Fire will be sharing it uh, whenever it goes live. So if it hasn't come out yet, it certainly will soon. Today, though, we are going to be discussing The Dark Knight of the Soul. This is not a Batman film. It's a <laughs> religious concept that dates back hundreds of years to one of the greatest doctors of the church, namely St. John of the Cross. Now, before we get into the concept itself, I was hoping, Bishop, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about who St. John of the Cross was. What should we know about him? Yeah, I love St. John of the Cross. And one reason is uh, the parish I grew up in outside Chicago was called St. John of the Cross. So I knew about him long before I read any of his great books. John of the Cross would be um, the mystical version of Thomas Aquinas, by which I mean the greatest of the church's doctors when it comes to the mystical life, as Thomas is the greatest in the theological uh, order. John of the Cross lives in the second half of the 16th century, dies in 1591, I think born in 1542. So he doesn't live a long life, only about 49 years. Uh, as a young man, he's well-educated in philosophy and theology, and there is indeed a great connection between him and Thomas Aquinas. He knew Aquinas well. You want to know a contemporary um, commentator on this, read the dissertation of the young Karl Wojtyla. So young John Paul II is in Rome under the direction of Garigou Lagrange, one of the great Thomists of the 20th century. But, but Wojtyla writes not on Thomas directly, but on Juan de la Cruz, right? But Juan de la Cruz, John of the Cross, was deeply indebted to Thomas Aquinas. So those two great doctors, one more speculative, one mystical, uh, come together. John, still as a pretty young man, uh, becomes associated with Teresa of Avila, another one of his contemporaries, and they become leaders in this reform movement within their Carmelite order, and they become the founders of the so-called discalced Carmelite movement. It just means without shoes, so it means a return to greater simplicity and gospel radicalism. Well, 
as is often the case, reformers are not super popular with those they're trying to reform, right? And so John of the Cross suffers immensely at the hands of his own brothers in the Carmelite order, some of whom literally kidnapped him, arrested him, brought him back to one of their houses, locked him in a closet, essentially, would bring him out to the uh, dining area so the monks would have a chance to beat him. So he was actively persecuted by his own brothers. While he was under those conditions, and literally in that closet, he composed, he didn't have writing materials, they wouldn't give him that, he composed in his mind some of the masterpieces of Spanish literature. And from these poems, including the Noche Oscura, right, the Dark Night, he then develops these treatises on the mystical and spiritual life. Eventually, he escaped from that imprisonment, but then, you know, he dies, as I say, fairly young, uh, not well-known in his lifetime, uh, not a, you know, a, a famous figure, died, you know, not completely forgotten, but not as a, as a prominent figure. And then only after his death did the church come to realize what a, what a powerful witness he gave. We'll spend a while on this dark night of the soul, but what are some other key ideas and themes that John has contributed to the spiritual tradition? Well, you know, the, the different spiritual paths, so the ascent of Mount Carmel, you know, how, how we ascend toward union with God. And we speak of um, the purgative way, the illuminative way, and the unitive way. Those ideas go back to our friend, the pseudo-Dionysius, the Areopagite. Why he's called pseudo and Areopagite, we can talk about maybe in another <laughs> program. But he's a 6th century Syrian monk who writes some uh, massively influential texts. Thomas knew them very well, for example. But uh, he's the first one to give us these three paths, purgative, illuminative, and unitive. But then that becomes a standard of the mystical tradition, and John of the Cross certainly employs that. But so would, um, in their own way, Catherine of Siena, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux. Um, I think, you know, Brandon, for those three ideas, which are really fundamental, the purgative way corresponds to what uh, Bernard would call the, the kiss of the feet, so someone is coming to Christ as a sinner, really stuck in abject sin. What's the first move? Is to kiss his feet in the attitude of a penitent, right? So the purgative way, to purge oneself of sin. The illuminative way, walking in the light, I've turned away from the darkness of my attachments and addictions and sin, and now I'm walking the path of discipleship. That's the kiss of the hand, the way a, a disciple would kiss his master's hand, right? When that process, if you want, is, is complete, we're now ready for the unitive way. Bernard uh, and, um, and Catherine will compare that to the kiss of the mouth. Right? So there's the kiss of, of intimacy, the soul and Christ in intimate union. John of the Cross will give us his own version of those three uh, mystical paths. You mentioned that the young Carol Wojtyla, when he's studying at the Angelicum in Rome, was drawn to John of the Cross. Why do you think that is? What about John of the Cross appealed to this uh, future pope? Well, because Wojtyla was very influenced by the Carmelite tradition through his um, friend Jan Tyranowski, who was a layman from his hometown and who gathered a lot of these uh, young people from the town into these, uh, they call them living rosary groups. But he taught them the church's mystical tradition, including and especially John of the Cross and the Carmelite tradition. You know, the Carmelite tradition includes Teresa of Avila, whom I mentioned, but also like in our own time, the little flower is coming up out of the Carmelite tradition and one of my great heroes, Edith Stein, right, who becomes a Carmelite uh, sister 
and whose final work left unfinished on her desk literally when the Nazis took her to Auschwitz was a commentary on St. John of the Cross called The Science of the Cross. Um, so that whole tradition intrigued the young Karol Wojtyla, one reason why he you know, moved to canonize Edith Stein. So I think that's why he was drawn to John of the Cross. You know, people like you and I, which are very, who are very drawn to the rationalistic side of the faith, you yeah. know, philosophic proofs and the Thomistic disputatio with very logical steps and counter arguments and all that stuff. But I found that among my friends and family, people that aren't as much drawn to that are more drawn to the style and writings of John of the Cross, which tends to be more poetic, more lyrical. Um, talk about these differing styles and and I want to not conf uh, make them opposed to each other. No. It's not like we got to choose one or two, but, but talk about the style in which he wrote. Yeah, and stay with those two examples of Thomas Aquinas and Juan de la Cruz because they both have both, right? So Thomas, yes, mm -hmm. high intellectualism and Aristotle and syllogistic reasoning and scholastic method and yes, yes, all that because he knew, you know, that God does not despise the mind. He knew that... Uh, reason is not something opposed to revelation. So yes, yes, yes. But Aquinas, both in his writings, but more importantly in his life, was deeply ordered to a mystical uh, way of knowing. So think of some of those extraordinary experiences Thomas had in the course of his life. Culminating in the all I've written is straw. It's a very interesting moment because that is not a despairing cry. It should never be read that way. Rather, it's at the end of his striving he said, something's been revealed to me compared to which everything I've written is such straw. That's not a, a, a despairing voice. That's a, that's a voice of, of exaltation, right? I mean, he knew he had sort of written theology about as, as at a high level as you can get. But compared to the mystical union that he was granted, it's like, it's like nothing, you know? Um, now, do it the other way. John of the Cross, who is one of the great articulators of the mystical path. But John of the Cross, deeply imbued in the scholastic method of Thomas Aquinas. And when you read his writings, they don't sound like, you know, Oprah or something. I mean, they're, they're very disciplined, very intellectual, very much ordered to this sort of rational substrate, if you want. So my point is, though they've got different sort of styles and emphases, both Aquinas and Juan de la Cruz saw the two together. You know, a really good example, Brandon, in, in the 20th century is Jacques Maritain's great book called The Degrees of Knowledge, Le Degré du Savoir, because Maritain, talk about an Aquinas man, right, and love, love, love the scholastic philosophical method. But then he realizes beyond physics, mathematics, metaphysics, you come to the mystical knowledge that's given only in revelation and through grace. And whom does he put at the top of that whole process? Juan de la Cruz. You know, and so I really like your instinct to say, don't, don't drive a wedge between these things at all, because a mysticism without a rational foundation can become kind of airy-fairy and kind of unanchored, you know? A, a philosophy without the mystical can easily become rationalistic. Use our friend uh, John Henry Newman, right? Newman saw the prophetic office of the church that's very much geared to teaching and, and order and um, understanding and theology. But then there's the, the priestly dimension, 
right? And the priestly dimension, that's now monasticism and liturgy and prayer and mysticism. And what Newman saw is if you got the priestly without the prophetic, it can become sort of superstitious. You have the prophetic without the priestly, it becomes rationalistic. What you need is the two together, mind you, under the aegis of the kingly office of the church. So part of the job of the, of the king is to order these various charisms. Don't let the prophets get too crazy. Don't let the mystics get too crazy. But keep the mystics and the prophets in conversation. And then you have Thomas Aquinas and Juan de la Cruz are a very good example of that. Let's turn to what's probably the most famous and recognizable idea of John of the Cross, which is this concept of dark night of the soul. And maybe we'll, we'll start where all good thinkers and philosophers start with this, which is with a definition. So what do we mean when we say dark night of the soul? What is that? Let me start this way, Brandon. Um, by a really interesting instinct, and we see it all the time, when people pray, what's one of the physical things they most um, automatically do? They close their eyes, right? Now, why is that? Why would people close their eyes when they pray? Well, for a good reason. The eyes order me toward the, this world. So right now I'm looking at picture of you on this camera, and there's lights around me, and I'm going to get in my car later, and my eyes will be looking around to see how to get home. And Good. That's what eyes are for. They order me to the conditioned things of this world. Is God in that realm? Uh-uh. God is not one of the conditioned things in the world. He made them, yes, they're good, yes, we're not Puritans here. We're not playing that game. So that's always a danger. Oh, I guess you're closing your eyes because you don't like the world. No, no, no. Don't go down that path. But God is not anything in the world. So if I'm going to really come to communion with God, to some degree, I have to darken the senses I have to go through a dark night of the senses, John of the Cross calls that. Now, take the next step. I got my eyes and my ears and my hands that order me to this world. What else does that? Well, my mind, right? My mind, which uses words and ideas and concepts and arguments and syllogisms. And what's it doing? It's making its way through this world. So you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, you're a businessman, you're whatever you are. You're using your mind to make your way in a more sophisticated manner through this world. So an animal can do it using its senses. We do it with both senses and our minds, right? Okay. God doesn't despise any of that. We're not, we're not anti-intellectuals. But God is beyond anything that words and concepts and ideas and syllogisms can give us. Therefore, I close these eyes when I pray, dark night of the senses, and I have to close, if you want, the eyes of the mind, too. They have to close because God is beyond what the mind can manipulate, control, understand, right? The dark night of the soul and the dark night of the senses are about this process of quieting the body quieting the soul so as to open to a graced knowledge of that reality which transcends whatever the senses and mind can grasp. So it's, you know, dark night sounds like such a bad thing. But think about this for a second. What happens on a really dark night? Look up and suddenly, there. look at the stars. I, I didn't even know they were there. 
look at them. The, the stars now, now shine with a particular brilliance because the other lights have been lowered, right? If I darken my ordinary way of perceiving, now that which stands beyond this conditioned finite world can begin to shine. That's what he's talking about. You've spoken often on St. John's language of attachment and detachment. Yeah. How does that fit in with this dark night of the soul? Exactly at that point. Because, again, the world is great. And, and he, he knows that. He says that. He's a Catholic. He's not a Puritan or a Platonist. Um, but if I live totally in the realm of, of the senses and what the mind can control, it becomes very easy to get attached to the things of the world. My life is all about the things of the world. Now, I'm recording these words during Lent. So we have a version of the dark night of the senses during Lent, right? Is I say, well, I'm, I'm going to abstain from certain things. I'm going to give up certain things. I'm trying to detach myself from an inordinate uh, connection to the things of this world. Um, so that's where if I identify, let's say it's, it's wealth, it's power, it's, it's a, a sensual pleasure, uh, it's booze, it's food, whatever it is, is I'm too involved with that. Well, yeah, I've got to darken, I've got to darken that sensual side of my life if I'm going to come to knowledge of what goes beyond it. I think it's pretty common in Catholic circles, and I'm sure you've experienced this as a priest and a spiritual director, to hear people say, oh, I'm going through a dark night of the soul. <laughs> yeah. I'm having a tough time, or, you know, uh, I'm sad, I'm maybe borderline depressed, I'm right. confused, I'm anxious. How do we distinguish this very specific concept of the dark night of the soul of John of the Cross from just general sadness, depression, anxiety, confusion. Right. It, they're different. <laughs> they're not the same thing at all. Now, here's the point of, um, of contact. There, there's, there's a point where we could see a, a, a connection. Namely, if I am attached through my senses and through my mind to the things of this world and I want to get detached, well, that can be painful, Right. It's not easy. If, if I, I'm, I'm so ordered to this world, so closing my eyes and getting focused on a reality beyond or saying I'm going to get detached from sensual pleasure or from money or power, yeah, that's hard. It's, it's a challenge. But that's not the same as depression or, or like psychological anxiety. Here's another distinction, Brandon, which I think is really interesting. Juan de la Cruz talks about the active uh, night of the senses, the active night of the soul, and the passive night of the senses and of the soul. What's the difference? Well, in the first one, I'm kind of in charge. I say, okay, I am too attached. So I'm now going to get detached from whatever. I'm going to abstain. I'm going to fast. I'm going to close my eyes. Good, good. That's something that I'm able to do. But, he says, and I think he's dead right about this. Anyone that's lived the spiritual life knows that's never going to be enough because we have such a tendency to stay within the confines of our ordinary experience. So what does God have to do? God's got to take the initiative now and take away from us things that we do not want to be separated from. Now, there's suffering if you want. Yeah, absolutely. So this is very, to me, Brandon, really interesting. So someone's going through their life and suddenly something that they loved and it was good in itself. It's not, not sinful, let's say. But something they loved was taken away from them. Some dream they had, now I realize that's not going to happen. Some, some uh, relationship, and now it's been severed. 
and I'm suffering from that. I, I hate it. I'm objecting to it. But might I read it, not just in worldly terms, but now begin to read it theologically and spiritually. Maybe God is taking this away from me. Why? That I might find a greater detachment that will enable me to come to a higher and more intense relationship with him. See, so like if you're doing spiritual direction with someone and they're going through a real struggle because they've lost something, it might be a fair question to ask. Okay, remember our friend Jean-Pierre de Cossade, right? Whatever happens is directly or indirectly God's will. Okay, how come it's God's will right now in your life that this be taken away from you? You know, maybe that's, uh, that's serving God's purpose of drawing you closer to himself. Um, here's a, another thing that, that John of the Cross is really good at, Brandon. I used to use it a lot in spiritual direction with people. He said, typically, when someone's being drawn into friendship with God, God gives a lot of consolations. Now, you know what I think of? I've, I've shared some of this autobiography before, but when I was a young guy and I discover Thomas Aquinas, and then I started reading The Seven-Story Mountain of Thomas Merton, I remember that period of my life with great joy and, and great exuberance because I was experiencing a tremendous consolation. It was, like, it was exciting to me. There, I remember the same time I was listening to the Beatles a lot. I was just kind of discovering them. I can hear a Beatles song to this day, and it reminds me vividly of that moment. And God was giving me, I would say, a lot of consolation to draw me into friendship with him, right? Well, John the Cross says, fine, it often works that way. But almost invariably, what's God going to do? He's going to withdraw the consolation. Why? Because he's cruel? No, no. It's like weaning a child, right? Uh, You're not meant to fall in love with the consolation. You're meant to fall in love with God and God's will. And that might not be very consoling sometimes. It might be really challenging. Maximilian Kolbe, you know, offering his life in exchange for this, for this man, was that consoling to him? I mean, on the contrary. Because he learned long before not to fall in love with consolations, but to fall in love with God's will. And so John of the Cross will say that. Uh, God, now this is the passive night of the senses, the passive night of the soul is he might take things away from us that we're not willing to let go of ourselves. Does that make sense? So it, it's not depression, not at all, but it, it can be a struggle for sure. I think it's hard for a lot of people experiencing a legitimate dark night of the soul to see it as something positive, as yeah. a gift. But that's the sense you get when you read John of the Cross, that if, if this is happening to you, this is a good thing. This isn't a punishment. This isn't an arbitrary thing. It's actually a gift that God is giving you. How do, we, how do we see it as a positive thing rather than as a negative one? We have to become convinced that God is not a distant object out there basically indifferent to us, and we're trying to climb the holy mountain if we can figure out how to do it. No, no. God is always already after us, always wants a deeper relationship with us. And so then start reading your life under that rubric. Oh, these, I don't know, why did this happened to me? And I don't know, it's just dumb suffering and it's just not fair and I'm mad and I'm frustrated. No, if God is God and he's providential over all things, interested above all in, in cultivating a friendship, well, okay, the, the right question is, well, what's God up to? And how can I cooperate with that? Uh, 
I think I've said before, Brandon, when I was doing spiritual direction with people, that's, that was always the basic question. What were the graces that happened to you the last two weeks? How did you cooperate with them? And so to see, okay, I, this dream of mine, I, I guess it's not going to happen. All right, why, why would God have willed that? What grace is contained in God taking that away from you? Um, you know, Father Steve, my, my friend and colleague who loves John of the Cross, always tells the story about one of John of the Cross's Carmelite young, you know, uh, colleagues. He said, oh, Master, uh, there's this crucifix I have that I, I love it. I, I just love it. I, I pray so well with it. And John of the Cross said, give it to me. <laughs> because he felt, all right, you're too attached to it. You know, Take, give it to me. And so does God operate that way sometimes? Yeah, yeah. If I'm saying, look, I'm falling in love with constellations, he doesn't want that. He wants you to fall in love with his will. That reminded me, next time we're together, I'm not going to say, Bishop, I love this book that <laughs> I've it been to reading. Me. It's so good. Yeah, give it to me. No, and of course, I don't, want to, I don't want to generalize. John certainly would have known that young man and for whatever particular reason sure. felt that was the right move to make, you know. How about for somebody who thinks they may be experiencing something like this dark night of the soul, I think a good first move would be to read John of the Cross and follow Mm. the way he describes it and analyzes it. And then I think a second good move, if available, is to find a good spiritual director and talk talk about it with them. But what are your general tips for discerning whether we're experiencing authentic dark night of the soul versus depression, sadness, confusion, anxiety? Uh, how do we assess Listen, that in our own lives? I kept it here on my, on my phone. I found um, the great poem, The Dark Night, right, by John of the Cross. And here's a cool thing about John of the Cross. I think he's unique in the literary tradition. John is, is recognized uh, as one of the masters of Spanish literature, period. And he's writing around the same time as Shakespeare. He's writing in the 1580s. Shakespeare's like around 1600, right? Um, Spaniards. I used to tell my, my students who were native Spanish speakers, I said, you've got to read him. Read him in your own language. Because, But then here's why he's unique. He writes a poem, beautiful, beautifully crafted, as you'll hear. But then he writes a 200-page treatise explaining his poem. I don't know any other great figure that does that. It's like... If T.S. Eliot, you know, writes The Wasteland, and oh, by the way, here's a 500-page commentary on The Wasteland. No one does that except John of the Cross. So the treatises we have are their elaborations of. So here's, by the way, it's, he, never, he doesn't use the phrase dark night of the soul in here. It's simply en una noche oscura, on a dark night. But see, listen, this is a poem for lovers. It's not a poem for depressed people. And that's why it's really, it's married people can best understand this. John of the Cross is standing in a tradition that goes back through Bernard, for sure, but behind Bernard, all the way to Origen, behind Origen to the Song of Songs, right? This book in the Bible that never mentions God once, but it's a love poem. It's between a a young man and a young woman, and and they're in this sort of, you know, um, playful, amorous relationship. And it's the young man kind of calling out to the young woman and so on. Well, the church saw that as God calling out to the soul, which is always conceived of as a, as a woman, right? So the, the bride-bridegroom imagery. Well, listen to John of the Cross. And you tell me if this is the poem of a depressed person, right? <laughs> or is about depression. In a noche oscura, on a dark night, con ansias en amores inflamadas, something like, you know, fired by, by love's longings. Young, young people falling in love know what he's talking about. 
Oh, dichosa ventura. Oh, oh, what a blessed fortune, you know. Salí sin ser notada, estando ya en mi casa sosegada. I, I went out, right, with, without being noticed. Listen, my house now being all quieted. What's that? The house of, of my body, the house of my senses. They've been quieted. Close my eyes. So now, in, and I'm in love, but I'm going out from this world of ordinary experience to meet my beloved, right? Um, and then in the second stanza, again it ends with, estando ya mi casa sosegada. And the double thing here is the dark night of the senses, dark night of the soul. My house at the sensual level and at the intellectual level, all being sosegada, it's all being quieted, right? En la noche dichosa, in this blessed night, en secreto, in secret, no one seeing me. Ni yo miraba cosa. So neither am I looking at anything. See, because I got my eyes closed. I'm not looking at the world, right? Sin otra luz y guía, sino la que en el corazón ardía. Without any light or guide except that which burned in my own heart. So he's quieted his house. He's looking for his beloved. What's the light? His own ardent desire for the beloved. Depression? depression? This ain't depression. This is someone who's wildly in love, right? Um, and then his, his beloved waiting for him. And then this, how uh, lovely. O noche que guiaste, the night that, that guided. O noche amable, mas que la alborada. It's more lovely than the dawn. O noche que juntaste, the night that, that brings together. Listen now. Amado con amada, amada en el amado transformada. The, the beloved with the lover, the lover with the beloved, the beloved in the lover transformed. What's he talking about? But sexual union. So it, it's the coming together of the lover and the beloved. And even see how the language with all the doubling and all the repetition and so on is meant to suggest that. Um, and then, you know, this, this extraordinary... En mi pecho florido. So this is the soul speaking. So the soul is the woman. The soul thing is the woman. On my flowering breast, en mi pecho florido, que entero para él solo se guardaba, which has been kept solely for him. So these are two lovers, right? And I, I exist totally for you. Allí quedó dormido. There he stayed sleeping. And with the fanning of, of the cedars made a breeze. I mean, it's this very romantic um, uh, image. Two people who have found each other, fallen in love, and have come together. Now, what do you notice? The house all quieted. That's the purgative way, right? I'm going to purge myself of sin and attachment and all that. And then, guided only by the light of my own heart. What's that? That's the illuminative way. That's the, the way of, of discipleship. And then finally, what's this? Where they, they come together and now she's, he's lying on her breast it's the unitive way. This is the way now of, of complete, you know, connection. Um, anyway, lovely. Married people should read this poetry because it goes right back to the Song of Songs. And it's all about using sexual union and romantic love as a metaphor for the soul's relationship with God, right? So can you, can you read this poem? with all of its, its, its romance and all of its lyricism and say, oh yeah, that's a depressed person talking. On the contrary, the dark night enables him to go out with his heart on fire and find his beloved. 
And that's the whole purpose of the dark night of the senses and of the soul. Let's close by looking at a recent saint who experienced this dark night of the soul in a profound way, namely Mother Teresa. Um, One of our mutual friends, Father Paul Murray, wrote a whole book titled, I Loved Jesus in the Night, Mm -hmm. which was reflecting on the revelations Mother Teresa uh, that we, the revelations we had after Mother Teresa's death when her diaries were published and it became very clear that for not just months or years, but for decades even, she experienced this profound dark night of the soul. Can you talk about how that shaped her and what her experiences were like? Yeah, you know, at the beginning of her, Paul especially, to serve the poorest the poor, she had a lot of consolations. She heard, and she said quite literally, the voice of Jesus calling her. And she felt this extraordinary intimacy and extraordinary uh, sense of purpose. Well, she was given all kinds of consolations, but then uh, Christ took those away. Now, why? Well, consult John of the Cross. You take them away because God wants you, Christ wants you to fall in love with his will, which she did. There's no question about it. She fell in love with the will of Christ, which was to serve the poorest of the poor. Paul Murray talks about this, which I think is very John of the Cross-esque, namely, It's the closeness of God to us that can produce a darkening. Now, why? Because it's the overpowering of the light. You know, Aristotle said that a long time ago, that that we can be um, blind through lack of light or excess of light. So there's no light. I don't see what's going on. But if you give me excess of light, I also can't see what's going on. So the saints are those who live very close to God's will. And they experience, therefore, a kind of excess of light. If you're living in God, it's going to make you uh, a certain awkwardness now of, of your involvement with the world because you've been decentered, you've been displaced in a way, you've been placed in a higher world. And so you're overwhelmed. There's too much light. And that can feel like darkness. And I think there's something of that in the Mother Teresa experience.